This evening we look together to Article 37 of our Belgic Confession and what we confess together concerning the last things. But first I'd like to read with you about the last things from Revelation chapter 20 and the beginning of 21. Now what we need to understand about Revelation 20 and 21 is that what we see here as in all of the book of Revelation, is deeply symbolic. It's symbolism that rests on the symbolism set forth in the prophets of the Old Testament. But even without taking the time to evaluate each of those symbols, we get what Revelation 20 is telling us. It's telling us that there will be an end to this age. And that at that end of this age, there will be a day of reckoning. There will be a time of judgment. And what is coming at that judgment and after that judgment will be a great comfort for some and a great terror for others. And we need to know which of those we are. So Revelation 20 says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were ended, were finished. But after these things he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and uh, their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no more sea. 
Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and, be the, and will be their God. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Amen. Well, taking up that passage, along with quite a number of others, Article 37 from our Belgic Confession reminds us that finally we believe according to the word of God, when the time appointed by the Lord, which is unknown to all creatures, is come, and the number of the elect is complete, that our Lord Jesus Christ will come from heaven corporally and visibly as he ascended, with great glory and majesty, to declare himself judge of the living and the dead, burning this old world with fire and flame to cleanse it. Then all men will personally appear before this great judge, both men and women and children, that have been from the beginning of the world to the end thereof, being summoned by the voice of the archangel and by the sound of the trump of God. For all the dead shall be raised out of the earth, and their souls joined and united with their proper bodies in which they formerly lived. As for those who shall then be living, they shall not die as the others, but be changed in the twinkling of an eye, and from corruptible become incorruptible. Then the books, that is to say the consciences, shall be opened, and the dead judged according to what they shall have done in this world, whether it be good or evil. Nay, all men shall give account of every idle word they have spoken, which the world only counts amusement and jest. And then the secrets and hypocrisy of men shall be disclosed and laid open before all. And therefore the consideration of this judgment is justly terrible and dreadful to the wicked and ungodly, but most desirable and comfortable to the righteous and elect, because then their full deliverance shall be perfected, and there they shall receive the fruits of their labor and trouble which they have borne. Their innocence shall be known to all, and they shall see the terrible vengeance which God shall execute on the wicked, who most cruelly persecuted, oppressed, and tormented them in this world, and who shall be convicted by the testimony of their own consciences, and shall become immortal but only to be tormented in the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. But on the contrary, the faithful and elect shall be crowned with glory and honor, and the Son of God will confess their names before God his Father and his elect angels. All tears shall be wiped from their eyes, and their cause which is now condemned by many judges and magistrates as heretical and impious will then be known to be the cause of the Son of God. And for a gracious reward the Lord will cause them to possess such glory as never entered into the heart of man to conceive. Therefore, we expect that great day with the most ardent desire 
to the end that we may fully enjoy the promises of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, this final article of our Belgic Confession often leaves us a bit uncomfortable. We don't much like to talk about the end times because there's so many questions and there's so much debate. And we really don't want to get into the argument because we don't feel qualified oftentimes to enter into that debate. But you know, there's plenty of folks that love talking about the end times. There's the folks that, that cherish that left behind series of books and movies and Bible studies and all sorts of paraphernalia that came out, oh, what was it, a little over a decade ago, that talk about exactly what they believe is going to happen come the end of times with the doctrines known as the rapture and the tribulation and then the final judgment. And then at the other end of the theological spectrum, there are those who, who believe that there won't be a, a rapture, but we're already in the tribulation and, and the kingdom of God is going to come with all of its fullness and all of its power here on earth before Jesus returns. There's going to be a golden age in this world, despite its brokenness, despite its sin, before Christ returns. And so we need to work right now using the existing power struggles, the, or the power structures, the existing governments to bring about that golden age of Christ's reign. And we look at one end of the spectrum, the other end of the spectrum, and they're both quoting Scripture, and we think, I don't even want to discuss it. It just seems far too complex. But you know, as our confession shows, it does not need to be confusing. We celebrate, and rightly we celebrate, every year Jesus coming as a child. But just as earnestly and eagerly as we celebrate His coming as a child, we need to get in the habit of celebrating the fact that He who came as one of us is also coming back. Because when Jesus came as a man, and when He lived among us, the work that He did in those 33-some years living among us was a work that changed humanity. It changed the world. It changed our existence. Before he came, Satan rove about unchecked, deceiving entire nations into doing his will. But now, as we saw in Revelation 20, that great serpent has been chained. He has been restrained. Because of what Jesus has done, yes, he's still a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, but that lion is on a leash which is extended only so far as our king allows him to go. And because he's restrained, because he's no longer able to deceive the entirety of nations, Satan's kingdom cannot grow as it once did. It cannot have almost unbroken sway over the world. And that's good because Jesus, when he came, established the eternal kingdom of God in the world. A kingdom that stands opposed to Satan's kingdom. A kingdom which, which counters the enslaving power of Satan with the freeing power of Christ. 
And so today, we live in the midst of that battle. A battle that Christ has already won as evidenced by the fact that Satan has been chained, has been restrained. But a battle which still rages on for the souls of individual men, women, and children. We live in the midst of that thousand years of which Revelation speaks, during which the people of God reign at His right hand, and the emissaries of God go out gathering together the elect, as Matthew 25 tells us. And the kingdom of Christ is built. Our reality today is that we are members of the kingdom which Christ established, and we await that final day when the fullness of the kingdom is revealed, the fullness of the victory is laid forth for all the world to see, and all of Christ's enemies are removed. That, that victory might overshadow all things. That renewal and, and reconciliation might replace the brokenness that now fills this world. When that will happen, we do not and cannot know. Jesus told his disciples, and Paul echoed him in Thessalonians, that that day will come like a thief. It will surprise us, but it will come. And on that amazing day, we will see, we will experience, we will enjoy the fullness of what Christ has done for us. And folks, that lies at the heart of our hope in the midst of these trying times, this trying world. And so really the heart of what Article 37 tells us is that we as God's people ought to be eagerly awaiting the day of Christ's promised return. And that really needs to be the lens through which we view the end times. That we are eagerly awaiting the return of our Savior. Now there's a lot of things that we don't know in terms of details of what, we'll, what that'll look like. But He has shown us enough to understand essentially what's going to happen when He returns and to be eager to see it occur. So we confess that we eagerly await the day of Christ's promised return. First of all, because that's going to be a day of complete revealing. It's going to be a day of complete revealing. That's our first uh, point. Jesus, the Bible tells us, will return in a way that everyone will know. That's, that's a way that we differ from some of our Protestant friends those of the left-behind persuasion, who believe that there's going to come a time when all of a sudden all believers are raptured up to be with the Lord. And the world is going to be left with only those who do not believe in Christ, have not been turned to Christ. Inexplicably, these unbelievers are going to minister to one another and lead each other to Christ during the intervening time before Christ actually comes back, they say. But that's not what we find in Scripture. What we find in Scripture is that everything goes along the way it's been going. Just as it was in the days leading up to the flood. People marrying and giving in marriage. People doing business, going about their day-to-day -day activities. Not thinking anything untoward or unusual is going to happen. And then suddenly, like a thief in the night, that day will break in upon us. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, The Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God. He will come physically just as He departed. He will come visibly in a way that all men will be able to see Him and He will come loudly. No one will miss that day. No one will sleep through it. Everyone will hear that something catastrophic and amazing has just occurred. And when He returns, there will be three purposes to His return. First of all, He will judge all men. Our God is a just God. 
through the world in which we live and the consciences which we've been given, we have all been given the calling to live for Him a righteous life. And on that day of His return, He will hold us accountable for how we have answered that call. Secondly, He will come to reveal the fullness of His work, the fullness of His work to save His elect, the fullness of His work to redeem the creation, to truly redeem it, to restore it from its brokenness, to make all things new unto God's glory. And that's the third thing. He's going to make all things new unto God's glory. So that we can see the world the way that it was made to be. Before sin entered, before brokenness and decay and death defiled this world that God made. When He comes, when He appears, our confession says all men will personally appear before the great judge. Men, women, and children, young, old, black, and white, all who have ever lived will appear before His throne. 1 Thessalonians 4 says that, that those who went before us, those who now sleep in the earth, their bodies having died and decayed back into the, the earth, their souls having gone to heaven, they will be restored. Their bodies will be reconstituted and rejoined with their souls and they will come before the Lord in, in the sky. We who still live, if we are among those who still live at that time, will join them. And we will all stand before the Lord. All of those who have ever lived from the beginning of the world until now. And then, once all men have been summoned their bodies having been rejoined to their souls, then we shall be judged according to the wisdom of our great judge. Revelation 20 gave us a picture of that. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to their works. Folks, this is a courtroom scene. Every individual will be brought before the great judge who is Christ. And evidence will be presented. The book will be opened of their consciences, setting forth an honest record, a complete record of every thought. The book will be opened of God's perfect vision, testifying to every word spoken, every single action committed, every duty omitted. And beside that, the book of life. Declaring whether this one was or was not one of those chosen by God, one of those who turned to Christ, one of those who trusted in Jesus. And all men will be judged based on that evidence. Not on the basis of our judgment whether we think we've been good enough, not on the basis of whether I've been better than my neighbor. There's no sliding scale in the last day. Not on the basis of whether I've been more good than bad. It's not a, a balance beam trying to tip it over just a bit more to the side of righteousness. No, and it's not, it's not on the basis of whether we've done a minimum level of good deeds or spoken the right words or memorized the right facts or gotten your name in the right membership books. The basis of our judgment will be none of those things. The basis of the judgment will be what we have done. How often we hear Jesus say exactly that. 
Matthew 25, the sheep will be placed on one side and the goats will be placed on the other. Those who enter into God's glory versus those who are cast into the outer darkness. And on what basis? On the basis of what they have done toward those who were in need who appeared before them. Because on the basis of what they have done to them, they did it also to Christ. Many will say to him, he says in Matthew 7, Many will say to him in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not heal in your name? And I will say to them, Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Because they didn't actually obey him. They didn't actually seek to do his will. The greatest in the kingdom, says Jesus, will be whom? The one who serves, the one who obeys, the one who follows the Lord. The basis of our judgment on that last great day will be our actions. What we've done, what we've said, what we've desired. Not, please hear this well, not that we in any way, shape, or form will have earned His judgment. We won't. We can't. We're all too sinful. But our thoughts, our words, our deeds will testify to whether we had faith in Christ. And faith in Christ is the only thing that can join us to Christ, and Christ Himself is the only one who can save us. If your name is written in the book of life, hear this, if your name is written in the book of life, then God will have brought you to faith in Jesus. And He will have imputed to your account the satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. That means He will have wiped out all of your sins by paying the price on the cross. He will have covered all of the things that you failed to do, all of the good things you failed to do by His righteousness. And He will have accounted for the desires to do wrong within you with the holiness of Christ. You will be saved by what Christ has done, but your deeds will demonstrate it. Because throughout the course of your life, it will be evident you were turning away from your sin and embracing holiness. You were beginning to not love yourself, but to love Christ. You were longing more and more and more to bring glory to God and honor to His name. Your deeds will demonstrate that you belong to God. Not that you were perfect by any means. No, your deeds will demonstrate that you needed a Savior. But also that you found one in Christ. Or your deeds will demonstrate that you didn't. That you relied on yourself. That you waited for your own glory. That you worked hard to appear good in the sight of all men. But wherever your heart truly was, wherever your allegiance truly sat, that's what your deeds will show. That's what your life will reveal. And there will be no hiding in that day. That also means if you've been done wrong, if you have been mistreated, if, if you have been wrongfully accused, you will be acquitted, you will be vindicated in that day. It will be evident to all. Today there are people hmm, there are people in our Congress who mock the prayers of the righteous and say, well, if your prayers were any good, they would have stopped the tragedy from happening. And on that day they will bow the knee and they will confess, we were wrong. You were doing exactly what you should have been doing and we should have been doing. We should have been seeking the King. We should have been praying to the One who truly is on the throne. And we were wrong. You will be vindicated for serving the true Lord. 
But it will be a day of revealing, complete revealing. Peter asks in 2 Peter, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be? Since everything will be revealed and and nothing will be hidden, since all of this world in which we live right now will be brought to nothing before the, the stern gaze of our judge, what should that mean for you right now? And then he answers, in holy conduct and godliness, look for and hasten the coming of the day of God in holiness and righteous conduct. Seeking to be godly, seeking to demonstrate that you belong to Christ. We must today live in a way that will allow us to face that day without fear. Again, not that we can manage to be sinless today. We can't do it. But we can strive each day, as we heard this morning, to keep our eyes on Christ. To lay all our cares on Him. To resist the devil through the power that God gives us. And to look forward to that which He will bring. Not which our hands will bring. Not which our friends will bring. Not which other men will provide. But to to keep our eyes on God and His promise. And if we do that, when that day shows up, when that day reveals us, it will reveal that we are the people of Christ. That we are the beloved sons and daughters of our God. But before we talk about that, we need to recognize that this day is not just a day of complete revealing. It's a day of just judgment. Because again, none of us is righteous in and of ourselves. Only Christ is truly righteous. And the only way we can be righteous is by being joined to Christ. So that His righteousness is imputed to us. So that His holiness is bestowed upon us. For us, on that day, what is true of us now judicially will become true of us actually. Do you understand what that means, young people? What is true of us today judicially, in other words, by the judge's statement, you are holy in Christ, will become ours actually. We will actually be holy. We will actually desire only that which is good and right and righteous. Right? We will not sin any longer. We will not uh, rebel in any way anymore. That'll be wonderful. That'll be the culmination, the fullness of what God has already begun in us. But for the ungodly, for the ungodly, it will be revealed that they lived their lives as rebels, that they lived their lives for denying God. That they were the people of Satan. This is a vivid image of what Satan seeks to do throughout this age. And he won't be able to really do it until just before the end. It's as though the Lord lengthens the leash of the lion just a bit at a time until finally at the end He allows the cord to snap. He gives Him a moment to go and wreak devastation on the world. And He doesn't do it alone. Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. 
to gather them together in battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. Satan won't be alone. He will have an army that is greater than can be numbered of those who follow after him in his wickedness and his rebellion. And on that great day, it will be revealed that they had joined themselves to Satan in seeking to attack God's people. They went out upon the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That's the church. They sought to destroy the church. We see them trying to do it even today. We see it, oh, just, just a little bit here. Go over to Sudan and see what Boko Haram, that uh, Islamic group, is seeking to do to Christians. How they mercilessly torment and torture your brothers and sisters in the Lord. Ask what they do to your, your siblings in Christ in North Korea. The absolutely unthinkable treatment that they receive in the concentration camps of North Korea. And so it is throughout the world. The, the crackdown is beginning again in China. It's happening throughout the Middle East for anyone who dares to speak of Jesus to others and call them to repent and seek Him. On that day, well, on that day it will be clear what they have done and whom, with whom they have allied themselves. In 2 Thessalonians 1, the apostle says, It is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and to give you who are troubled rest. And he does that even a little bit today. But on that day, he says, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes in that day to be glorified. He will repay them all that they have done with interest. Their very consciences will convict them. There will be not one of them who will be able to deny what He has done and proclaim His innocence. And I suspect they won't even try. They will simply know. They will simply understand that they deserve all the wrath of the righteous judge and these will be punished with everlasting destruction. Revelation 21, the last verse we read, declares the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Jesus says in Matthew 25 several times, these will be cast into the outer darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. It's impossible for us to imagine, to fully comprehend how horrific that is. And that's good. Because if we could, we would not sleep a wink. Let none of us think lightly about that punishment. If we understand that how horrific is the judgment that awaits those who maintain their rebellion against God, then we will get over ourselves and our embarrassment and our weakness. And we will tell our loved ones and our friends who do not have a relationship with the Lord and who refuse a relationship with the Lord that it's not a laughing matter. They joke about it and say, I'll repent later, I'm having too much fun now. Or I want to go to hell for the company. 
Don't let him get away with such snide remarks about that which will be utterly horrific and beyond the imagination of man. But love them and pray for them and earnestly ask God to give you an opening to tell them that the day is coming when they will deeply and eternally repent and, and sorrow over their flippant attitude toward eternity and urge them to take serious that wide chasm of endless time that stands before them. Because on that day it will be too late. God's justice will be fully revealed. But for those who have turned to Christ, it will be a day of gracious reward. And that's the last point, and that's the thing that I want us to depart from here pondering. It will be a day of gracious reward. And our confession tells us that that reward will have at least four aspects. First of all, Jesus, our judge, will confess us as his own. Matthew 10, we read the sobering yet encouraging words of Jesus, who says, Whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Now for those who deny Christ... That is a horrific thing to hear. For Christ to look at us as we confess, no, I was one of, I was one of yours. And He says, I, I never knew you. You never spoke to me. You never obeyed me. You never followed after me. You never loved me. That's horrific. But for those who confessed Him, he doesn't say they, they spoke ornately, that they mastered hard theological truths. No, he says they confessed him, period, end of sentence, full stop. They said, Jesus is my Lord. He's my King. He's the one whom I love, period. And for them, he says, I will confess you before my Father in heaven. I will say, that's one of the one for, ones for whom I died. That's one of the ones who loved me. That's one of the ones whom you gave me, Father. Let no one snatch him out of my hand. What a glorious thing that will be to hear. Young people, can you imagine that? For Jesus himself to say, He's mine. She belongs to me. It's for, for those whom Jesus confesses. That 1 Thessalonians 5 says, God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with Him. If He confesses us, that's true of us, that we will never truly die. He will confess us, and He will comfort us. Think on this. You will be in the presence of God Himself. Now I find it fascinating that Time and again, in the eschatological passages, Matthew 25 and its parallels in Mark and Luke, Revelation 20 and 21, it tells us that, that He will wipe away every tear. And there will be no new cause of weeping, but, but He will wipe away every tear, which tells us that there will be, initially, some tears. And why will there be tears? With shame, we will remember that there were times we could have confessed Christ and we didn't. There was mercy we could have shown and we wouldn't. 
There were sins we could have repented of and we insisted on taking them up. And should we think on those things and tears begin to flow, He will be there. He will be there to comfort us with His presence. He will be there to give us the comfort of the knowledge of things that confuse us. He will comfort us with insight about how some of our weaknesses and even some of our bad decisions He used in order to bless us or to bless others. He will bring the endless comfort of His immense, undying, inescapable love. And it will be not just enough, but infinitely more than enough to bring us the comfort that we need both then and for all eternity. So He will confess us, He will comfort us, and He will vindicate us. I mentioned this before. It it will be shown to those who today mock you and slander you and persecute you that they were wrong. And that these ones whom they mocked as holier than thou, these ones whom they mocked as goody two-shoes, they were, they were the Lord's children. They were the ones whom God loves, the one whom, ones whom God cherishes. Glorious vindication indeed. And then He will reward us. Matthew 25 is instructive for what it tells us concerning what's coming at the judgment. There we find the parable of the talents where Jesus tells us that on that day He will reveal, and and Paul goes into this somewhat in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, that on that day He will look at what He has entrusted to us and what we have done with those things that He's entrusted to us. Children, think on this. All of the talents and the gifts that you have. Some of you are really great at math. Others are really wonderful at building and designing things. Some of you have amazing artistic abilities. Others a memory that's like a steel trap. And God's going to look at those, those talents and how you use them in order to serve Him, in order to serve others. And when you've used those to glorify Him, He's going to take that little that you were entrusted with and He's going to replace it with much. You have been faithful in little. Now enter into the joy of your Father's kingdom and serve Him with the much that you've now been given. And He's going to reward you with the joy of entering into your Father's kingdom. In in the last parable of Matthew 25... We read how Jesus separates all of mankind into the sheep and the goats, those who who love and serve God and those who didn't. And those who love Him, He's going to look to them and say, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You will enter into the kingdom of your Father and as as Revelation 20 told us, you will sit on thrones beside Christ and you will rule over all the creation. That means you will do what man was created to do. You will reign over the world as God's representatives. You will bring forth the image of God with perfection. Not just in in little broken ways like we do today, but with perfection. You will reign the way God would reign. You will make the judgments that God would make with regard to each portion of the, the creation entrusted to you. You will act with perfect wisdom in the decisions that you make. In the words that you speak. The sacrifices you made on behalf of Christ. Jobs that you passed over. Income you failed to make. Friends that you had to give up because you loved Christ more. The fun that that you thought you could have had but you didn't. 
go after because you didn't think that it would honor Christ. All that you've given up, all the people who've walked away from you because they didn't love the Lord. For all of that, you will be blessed. Jesus says there is no one who has given up family or homes or jobs or property or anything else who will not receive a hundredfold. And the Lord will fill us with the joy of knowing Him in a way that we never could here below. And we will enjoy that blessing. Imagine this. We will enjoy that blessing in the midst of a creation renewed. Time fails us to go through that new heaven and new earth that are expanded upon in Revelation 21 and 22. But just imagine, just imagine the Garden of Eden amped up beyond our wildest imagination. No longer is there a tree of life, but there are trees of life. And there is no tempting tree whatsoever. The water of life flows down the middle of the street and the sun is no more, nor is the moon because the light of God shines upon all of us and we will look upon God face to face without fear all our days. When we're curious about why something is the way it is, we can ask the Lord because there will be nothing separating us. There will be no veil. There will be no wall. There will be no division. And we will know the glory, the glory of God, but also the glory that we were made to bear. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to read Revelation 21 and 22. Remember, it's, it's quite symbolic. It's probably not going to be a city 144,000 miles high. <laughs> but it is going to be. You recognize that, that it portrays the city as a perfect cube which is to say a perfect fullness of space. The dwelling place, the throne room of God will be the very creation. And it will be filled with all of the glory that God can manifest to us. And there we will live and we will serve and we will use all of our gifts and we will love one another and be filled with the joy of Christ. Today, Today, our duty is to ponder that. Our duty is to believe all that God has promised and to look forward to it. But that day is coming soon. So when you get burdened, when you get brought low through the drudgery and the disappointments and the struggles and the stress of life, when you're not quite sure how you're going to make it through the next hour, much less the next day, you pause. And you look at what's coming. And you remember how Paul said, I I believe that the sufferings of this time are not worth being compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And you pray, Lord, come quickly and sustain me until that day. And you remember what he is using, all of this struggle, all of this strife to prepare you to enjoy. And then you take up the next task with joy. Knowing that God who has brought you this far, He won't drop you. He won't let you go. But He will take you all the way until you walk through the gates of that new Jerusalem and you look upon the face of your Savior. Until then, may the Lord sustain us in joy at the thought of what is coming. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen.
Oh Lord, our Heavenly Father, we thank You and we praise You that You have given us such an amazing, astounding, unfathomably great promise of the future. Father, we long to see it. We long to experience and and enjoy that which is waiting for us. But until that day dawns, Father, we pray that You would sustain us and strengthen us and that You would make us to be eager for that day, living today in the light of it and seeking to demonstrate our faith in Christ with every word we speak, every deed that we do, every desire that we cultivate. Father, we pray it in Jesus' holy name. Amen.